Father, I thank you again for this time, for this um, class, for the journey that you've taken us through um, in studying your word and learning of you, of seeing Jesus prized in the scriptures and being called to prize him ourselves. We pray that as we go through this next section in Acts, that we would see the beauty of the gospel once again displayed for us on these pages. And that you, by your Spirit, would do what only you can do, which is to move our hearts forward even more, imaging Him rightly, to be who we are already seen to be by you in Christ. And that we would take that identity that we have in Him and in Him alone, and we would be bold in sharing the good news of the gospel, Christ for righteousness, that we can be made right with you, that in Christ we look to you as if we are him. You see him when you see us, and that is a good thing. Because in our hearts there are no good things apart from the Spirit. And so we pray that you continue to to draw us into Christ, to display the beauty of Him to us so that our hearts are warmed, not just with knowledge, but that we take the knowledge we're given in the Scripture, that we understand it and look around us and see where it can be applied and then by the wisdom given to us by your Spirit, apply it rightly. May we do that with what we read this morning. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're in chapter 16 of Acts. Um, it's kind of a significant chapter. It's from here on out that, that uh, Luke is dealing with Paul and the Gentile mission. How were things left at the end of chapter 15? What, what did, how did that how do we get to this point, I guess, from chapter 15? Do you remember? Paul Just and Barnabas separated. Paul and Barnabas separated. There was no small dispute over what? Whether to include Mark. Mark. Whether to include John Mark. And John Mark was, by review, who, who was he? Why was that an issue? Because he got him chickened out on them before. Well, he chickened out. We, we assume that. Whatever it was, he left for some reason while they were in the middle of, of their first missionary journey. And Paul wants to go back through the towns that he did on the first missionary journey and encourage the churches, which is interesting. It's not just go make new converts and leave. He wants to grow and strengthen the churches he's already established in these areas. And so uh, Barnabas wants to take his cousin Mark. And Cousin Mark had proven himself, at least in Paul's eyes, to be an unworthy companion on these kinds of things. And so they had no small dispute. They ended up going separate ways. Barnabas takes Mark to um, Cyprus, and Paul takes Silas for the rest of the area. Um, There was also, before that, we saw reconciliation over an issue with the Gentiles and the Jews on how they're to have table fellowship. What does the gospel require of me? And how to have table fellowship cross-culturally. 
So we see uh, unity in one area and then disunity in another area over, over uh, uh, John Mark. Um, but that dispute between Paul and Barnabas is actually um, what Luke uses to intro the next missionary journey, the next section in Luke which, uh, and, and Acts, which is uh, chapters 16 to 20, the second missionary journey. And it's at this point, really, that Paul is established as what he calls himself the apostle to the Gentiles. It's at this point that that's established. And we've seen this confirmed at his conversion. Remember in, in chapter 9, verse 15, Jesus said, you're going to, be, uh, you're going to suffer much to take the gospel to the Gentiles for my sake. You know, that's part of that vision he has at his conversion. Um, again, in Antioch, he has, he's working with the church at Antioch, evangelizing Gentiles, and he is apparently having some success there. Um, in uh, the conversion of the proconsul on Cyprus, their first time out in chapter 13, we see Paul again being confirmed as apostle to the Gentiles. He has a special grace and special giftings to, to work in that population. And then you have the mass response of the Gentiles at Pisidian Antioch in chapter 13 40, and verse 48. Again, confirming. So time and time again, Paul's fruitfulness in this population of the Gentiles confirms the giftings that God has given him. And then you have this major affirmation by the church in Jerusalem. Here's how you do, you can do Gentiles, and here's how we have table fellowship, and this is the basis for found, uh, the, the, of, of the gospel and salvation, so that you're not putting a barrier, unnecessary barriers, to the gospel with the Gentiles. And so Paul is now completely untethered. He can now do a major missionary effort to the Gentiles without any restraints from the church, other than the decrees that the apostles said, this is not law, this is, this is just brotherly love, cross-culturally, this is how we, we should view this. And so it sets him up for a major outreach, and that's the subject of the next section. Um, in our passage today, we see an accommodation and a redirection. I'm branching out. I use two different letters. <laughs> Accommodation and a redirection. So let's look at chapter 16, verse 1. <clears throat> Paul came also to Derbe and Elystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." All right, so it looks like Paul, just quickly here in verse 1, is going in reverse order of the previous missionary trip. He goes to Derby, then to Lystra, and finally Iconium. And Luke just kind of throws that out there. This is where he goes, like in, in like half a, half a verse, one sentence. But these, what had happened in these places when he had been there before? 
What had gone on? He got stoned in one of them. He, and that's the, you know, to clarify, that's where you get thrown stones at, at you for being a heretic or whatever. <laughs> then, I just, well, I got to be clear in the culture. Uh, and then he'd, he'd been threatened with persecution in another, where he had to leave, threatened stoning, and had to leave. And then the next town he, he did, he was uh, left for dead outside the city from stoning. Um, in every one of these cities, he had faced some type of life-threatening adversity, right? And Luke just throws it out there. Man, he went to these towns. Now think about that. Uh, I'm thinking PTSD. I'm thinking all the emotional things that he's... The memories of being hauled out there, feeling helpless. and he, you know, All of this is going on. And Luke just says, yeah, he goes to these towns. He doesn't really explore Paul's feelings. You know, he doesn't explore the, any conversations he may have had with the guys about, yeah, I really am feeling this. He doesn't do any of this. He tells us nothing about any issues with the leaders in the towns when he's there. We don't hear any kind of pushback from anybody. It doesn't mean that there wasn't. It's just that's not what Luke focuses on. What does he tell us? What does he tell us? He, t he focuses on Timothy. Uh, Paul finds a young convert, happens to find him, a young convert in Lystra. Now, Lystra was a place where he was taken out and left for dead by the town, right? That's where that happened. And it's in that town that he apparently was there long enough, I don't know if undercover, you know, shuffled under tarps or whatever, I don't know how they did it, but he was in this town for a while, long enough to meet Timothy, a young convert. What else does he tell us? By simply being there, what does he tell us? What does that convey about Paul's view of his own safety, of his own person? Growing the church is more important. Growing the church is more important than my fear, right? Being involved in what is going on, what the Spirit is moving the church to do is more important than my fear. He tells us it's worth the risk in the cause of Christ. He's going to Lystra where he's already been basically martyred, except for some kind of miraculous thing where he doesn't die. He tells us that it's worth it because Jesus is worth it. I mean, in Lystra, he's, the first time he walks in, he's hailed as a god. Remember that? And then he leaves <laughs> with stones being hurled at him. Um, and it's in this town, you think Timothy was aware of that situation, probably? It's in this town that he calls Timothy to that life. <laughs> Remember what happened to me in your town? Let's go do it somewhere else. Away from mom and dad. Come on, it's good times. He calls Timothy into that. What is that? What is what is Luke telling us about Timothy? Let's let's pursue that a little bit more. What is what does he tell us? Jewish mom, Gentile dad. What does he tell us about that? Why is that significant? One of his parents is Jewish, and the other is not. Right? And that means what? 
He's kind of he's biracial. I prefer probably bi-ethnic. I don't like the whole racial thing. I think it's too pagan. Um, he's in both cultures. He's got a foot in both cultures, right? Uh, one, because some scholars have assumed or, or, or supposed that he was sort of looked down upon by both. Uh, certainly see that today in some situations. Um, well, it's interesting that, he made, that this is the next thing after the whole Jerusalem Council and all. Yeah. What do we do? You know, certain, you know, with all these these things, you know, can they, do they have to do all these things to be saved? And then, boom, here it is. And then we've got a guy who's having trouble having table fellowship with himself because he's both, right? <laughs> he, he, you have someone who is the product of Jewish and Gentile marriage. Um, and so what was the whole point of the decrees by the apostles? What was the thrust there? So they could get along. So they get along, table fellowship. What did they what did they tell the Gentiles? Take the burden. We would not burden you, right, with law. What was the burden? What was the whole argument about? Physically. Circumcision. Do they need to follow the Levitical law? Do they need to become Jews to be Christians? Right? And Paul is pretty adamant, no, right? He is let's just say forceful about this I mean in Galatians how does he describe the guys that say you gotta do this to be saved we've cleaned it up in the English he says I wish they would emasculate themselves he's pretty pretty stoked about not forcing circumcision as a condition of being a Christian and yet what does he do here does he have a disconnect here the, I like the the way that he worded it. It says he was a uh, what was it? He was a believe. Didn't he say he was a believer? Yeah, who was a son of a Jewish man who was a believer, and then later gets circumcised. So there's that issue is Luke has already spelled out. He's already a believer. Then he gets circumcised. Right. But then there's also what he says next. It's to appease the basically to appease the, the Jews uh, because he's part Jew. Right. And so. They've already gone through all this, and so if they're like, "Well, why does why does a Jew not have to follow Jewish customs?" Mm -hmm. and Paul's like, "We're, we're not going to worry with that. Let's just do this." I think you're exactly right. To appease the Jews, here's the deal: if a Jewish woman marries a Gentile man under Jewish law of the time or understanding of the time, it was considered a non-legal marriage. So, the children would take under the lineage of the mother. He would be considered a Jew because his mother was Jewish. So Paul's thought here is, um, why have that obstacle? I, where does Paul go every town? Where does he first go if he can? He goes to synagogues, right? And so he's taking in this half Jew, half Greek disciple with him into synagogues and they know he's considered Jew under the law why have that obstacle every every place he goes he's gonna start with controversy why make that an issue it's also a call to Timothy isn't it how serious are you about this <laughs> yeah and it's not for salvation 
That was clearly dealt with at the Jerusalem conference, right? It's what's the purpose? To appease the Jews. Appease them how? Appease them for why bother with that? Should we be teaching them grace? It's the same thing that the whole reason of the council is. There's these barriers in place. How do we how do we lower them so that they can all be in the church together? They're, they're not all, all that oh, sorry. We're all we're all Christians. Right. Why why throw up barriers that, that don't need to be there? Yeah. And they may not be that far along in, you know, yeah, yeah, they may, well, we'll accept it for now, but it's all new. It's still new, so. Yeah. And so Paul t- says this in 1 Corinthians, uh, to the Jews I became a Jew in order to win Jews. To those being under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. So he has a remove barriers to the mission idea. That was the point of the Jerusalem Council to remove those barriers. I think there might also be another issue here that's more subtle, but I think pretty important. <clears throat> Did Paul ever stop being a Jew? He kind of was happy about being a Jew, wasn't he? I mean, if you read Romans, he says a lot about his Jewish heritage. He talks a lot about his heart breaking for his countrymen, right? He never stopped being a Jew. He never stopped celebrating his culture, his heritage. But he didn't follow it when it impeded upon the requirements of the gospel. When it required idolatry, when it required a push toward unholiness, trusting in something other than Christ. The whole, uh, The other side of the Jerusalem conference is you don't have to give up your Gentileness in order to be a Christian. And I'm thankful for that. that. That was the thrust of it. Here are the things you want to avoid in your culture. Don't be an idolater and don't do immoral things. They focused on sexual morality, but it also had the tendency, uh, the, 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 the idea of anything that's Im- immoral. You want, to, you want to be holy. You want to look like Jesus. And don't let the culture that you're in corrupt you from that. But things that don't impede on that or don't invite you to those sins, be a Gentile. Why wouldn't that apply to Jews? Right? Doesn't it go both ways? Be a Jew. Don't trust in that for your salvation. I'm a son of Abraham. Don't do that. That's idolatry. But be a Jew. That's okay under the gospel. Um, a major cause for rejoicing among the Gentiles was that, was that they didn't have to abandon their Gentileness to become a Christian. Those areas that did not conflict with the gospel were not conditions of their salvation. And it's true also with the Jewish converts. Paul never abandoned his Jewish heritage. And he may have wanted Timothy to be true to his. Don't be a barrier to Jews and embrace your Jewishness. It's okay. What does that tell us? It tells us that it's okay to celebrate the 4th of July and still be a Christian. (laughs) You can still put your hand over your heart when you pledge to the flag and be a Christian. It's okay. You can attend a baseball game and enjoy it. 
basketball and enjoy football maybe I don't know <laughs> and enjoy it and still be a Christian that's okay where it's calling on us to be careful in our appreciation and love of the culture is where there's idolatry involved money fame Facebook where there's idolatry involved <laughs> where there's sin invited the culture's all watching this, and it's basically celebrating the sin of others, but it's funny the way it does it, or it's engaging the way it does it, or it may look incredibly like a Celtic knockoff, but it's sort of an American thing anyway. That's, those are inviting us to sin. That's where we call it off. But it's okay to celebrate Americanness. That's not... Uh, there's just this piety that's come into the church these days that you just can't be a good patriot anymore because that's not the gospel. Well, no, it's not the gospel. But it's not sin to love your country. It's not sin to celebrate your culture. And I'm just going to throw that out there for a little bit. Y'all can do with that as you will. My Palestinian brother can celebrate his heritage and still be a Christian, and that's okay. It's going to look different than mine. But as long as he's not engaging in sin, idolatry, and immorality, that's okay. Celebrate your culture. All right. Timothy. No one is more deeply involved in Paul's subsequent work than Timothy. Paul considers him a son in the faith. You see this again and again in the letters. And he listened... And he listed him in, 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 uh, in six letters as a co-sender of those letters. And he wrote two letters directly to Timothy. So very involved in Paul's ministry. So you have Timothy embracing his Jewishness and the life of a traveling um, target uh, in the church. He goes with Paul to share the decrees from, Jerusalem, from the Jerusalem conference. Luke doesn't tell us what cities that they go to, but it's assumed that it's the stuff that was around their first missionary journey, the towns and all of that. They're going, they're sharing what the, that, that you can maintain your Gentileness and still be a Christian. You know, that, that's, that's what they're showing. Um, and the churches, they're preaching there, they're sharing the gospel, they're encouraging the churches, and the churches are, in response, uh, strengthened and they grow. All right, let's look at verse 6. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Well, that's weird. It's just five verses, but encapsulates a lot of travel and time. They complete the goal, and along the goal, Paul gets Burr under a saddle to go to Asia. What Asia is he talking about? See, when I hear Asia, the first thing I'm thinking of is, Paul wants to go to China? What? 
But that's not the Asia they're talking about. They're talking about Asia, uh, the Roman province of Asia, which was that Greek area, the Aegean Sea. And it's actually, rather than looking east, it's looking west. They, they want to go to the eastern side of that coast, and that would have been Ephesus, right? And, and it's thought there, I mean, Paul's goal, a lot of scholars think at this point is, because it, it does this, and the Aegean Sea kind of does this, and there's all these, the west side over here is the Macedonian side. Paul's here in Troas. He wants to kind of go to Ephesus, or maybe it's down, Ephesus, let's go south. Uh, to Ephesus. And the idea is Ephesus is considered to be the eastern city that looks upon the west. The eastern, you know, the, the, the most western eastern city. I don't know what you said. It's the one on the far west side of the east. <laughs> the mind boggles. Um, so it's, but it's looking to the western, uh, western world. That's what we're going to say. Got it. got it. Okay. You got it. It's looking that way. So to clarify, it's following Western traditions, or at least it's trying to. Well, Ephesus is, well, I don't know, I don't know if we go that far. It's, just, it's a port city, so it's easy to get across to the Western side of the, of the Aegean Sea. So, carry the one. Anyway, his initial idea was to probably set up at Ephesus because it's a cultural hub, and then go west. But he's forbidden to do so. By whom? The Holy Spirit tells him, uh-uh. And so he then tries to go north to Bithynia, being towns like Nicaea, you may have heard of those, to go north, and he's forbidden again by whom? Spirit of Jesus. Does that strike you as odd? Isn't that the same thing? Why would Luke use two different names there? It's an interesting theological question here. Why would Luke use two names there? The Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus? Which one? The answer, yes, because God is one. But he's focusing on the different persons of the Trinity here. The Holy Spirit forbids go south. The Spirit of Jesus says don't go too far north. And so they're kind of threading it right across Mysia over the top here. And it says when they bypass Mysia, it doesn't mean they didn't go through it. It means they just didn't stop and preach there. And they end up on the coast at Troas. Why Holy Spirit? Why Spirit of Jesus? Pick it up in a second. So you have this overt prohibition by the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus how was it? How were they given this information, by the way? How did the Holy Spirit forbid them? Visions. I just, I just felt the check in my spirit. It Is it? Say. It doesn't say. Could it have been that maybe the Holy Spirit used one of the prophets in, in, or one of the guys that were at the churches that he had been planting to say, "Hey, first-century gifts at work here. <laughs> this is what you need to not do. Don't do this." Well, that's later. The prohibitions, and then there's the positive that says, go here. That's later. Um, we're not told by what means the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Jesus forbid them to do what they wanted to do. But I think there's some indication, at least, in using these names, the means or the emphasis that was given in each of the, the ways they were told. 
One could have been through the gifts, natural gifts of the church that were in operation at the time. And the other could have been a more overt, risen Christ kind of vision thing. We, don't, we just don't know. There's a lot of speculation as to what that means. Nevertheless, there's, this, there's a distinction there. So whether by inward prompting or external circumstance, we're not told. But again, notice this. Paul is really, really diligent about thinking through his mission. He's like hyper-planner here, trying to, where would be a good center to do this? How could we then go west? He's got all this stuff that he's really focused on, on, on how to plan out the next step. But he's also very tender to the guidance of, the, of, of Christ, right? He's very sensitive. No, I'm going to do this. I'm going to push through. He doesn't do that. He submits to the will of God as it's revealed to him um, by whatever means God is doing it. So there's strategy in his efforts and keen sensitivity to the guidance of the Spirit of God. Who gives the positive instruction? Who gives the dream? What does it say? So a man gives him a dream. The dream is of a man. Oh, sorry. It's a vision. Yeah. It's a vision. Who gives the vision? What does it say? Who gives the positive instruction? Verse 10. Just says God. So we have three references to God. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, and God. Most scholars think generally Luke is referring to God the Father here. You have a Trinitarian involvement. Trinitarian. You have a Trinity's involvement, the Trinity's involvement, in the Macedonian mission. And it makes no sense on the front end. He wants him to go, skip, skip the stopping point at Ephesus. Don't do that. Jump over to the other side. Go west, young man. Go, jump over to the other side and hit the western coast. And that initially... That's such a big deal. You've got no support out there. You're all the way on the other side of the, of the, of the ocean, the sea, here. You have no home church to go back to if things get rough. You're just hanging out there in the West. And he has them skirt this Missia thing. One of the things that I, I read about, that's like a wild backwoods area up there. That's like East Texas gone wild. Wild backwoods up there. And they're having to travel this by foot. They go across to Troas, and then they're told to go again, hook around the corner, and to go to, to the west. Um, the plan of Paul was postponed, not jettisoned. The idea, or, or a lot of scholars, look at this plan that God pushed him to as actually a better plan in the long run. The way the centers of these towns worked, you ended up evangelizing a lot more of the coast and then Ephesus, and they did it in three years' time. They had churches in all these towns in three years. Much more efficient, much more productive. Of course, when you have God giving the fruit, that tends to happen. But the way that he did it um, was not to jettison Paul's plan, but improve it. All right. So Paul has this dream of a Macedonian beckoning him to come. Who's the Macedonian? It's a guy named Sam. Who is he? Some have thought it was Luke, which doesn't make sense to me because Luke is really associated with Antioch and that whole area. And Luke, you know. Uh, some have thought it was uh, 
was Alexander the Great. I'm not really sure I buy that either. Not, not so much helpful with, with that. Um, we're not given the name. We just know that he's a Macedonian. He's a, a Greek guy. Um, and he's just beckoning. Come help us. And so he does. Um, how do his companions respond to this? Ah, that is interesting, isn't it? Who's the we? See, when Tammy says, we need to take out the trash, she means me. <laughs> what do they mean, we, here? What is Luke meaning, we? Including himself. Including himself. And it's the first of many we statements in Acts that are dealing with Luke along uh, uh, for the ride, I guess. I mean, he's there with Paul working at, from this point forward. This is the first occurrence of the narrative. It switches from a biography or a historical narrative of, of, uh, of Paul to uh, autobiography. I mean, he's, he's involved in it now. It's his first person um, accounting. All right. And so next time, uh, we're going to see where the push to Greece leads them. It's very interesting where it goes from there. But this is a transition from building off of the mission they first did and then just jettisoning what would naturally be the idea of, of staying in the, in the east and kind of working slowly incrementally out like they did before and just jumping in what what strikes you about that about this whole setup here I can't think of any off the top of my head. What happened with Philip uh, with Samaria? And he went, he went down, and I thought he wasn't supposed to go. Either. I thought he was supposed to, I don't know. I don't know, but I don't remember him being withheld, but I know that he was told to go somewhere else. Um, but I don't think it was this kind of prevention that you see with the Holy Spirit and with the Spirit of Jesus as it was to Paul. What strikes you about this? To me, it seems like Paul, I mean, we're, we're shown through his life in other places how prayerful he was mm. about everything. And so I think even though it doesn't say they were praying about this, I think it's fair to assume that they were praying about it. And um, it's just interesting that you could because we I don't know in my life anyway sometimes I go well if it's in the Bible and it's you know something that God approves of then obviously he would approve of me doing it mm -hmm. but that that's not exactly that still means that we shouldn't just jump off into something even though it's something that's maybe good and mm -hmm. godly without consulting God mm -hmm. without praying about it and without um, seeking wisdom about it yeah. and seeking wisdom because obviously even though this was a good thing that they had on their heart to do it wasn't God's timing or God's method right for how to accomplish it, it wasn't sin to go to Ephesus it yeah. wasn't sin to go to Bithynia but it wasn't 
it wasn't what God wanted them, purposed for them to do. And we're not given the means by which they came to that conclusion. It could have been very external means, like, you know, border checks or something. I don't know. But whatever it was, um, they're, they're guided. And it's very intentional, divine guidance to do this. What are we to do with that? You know, it's also very matter of fact. It's not, um, it's not emotional. It's not wishy-washy. It's not uncertain. It's very matter of fact. And it's, I think a lot of times it's easy to justify stuff and say, oh, well, you know, like there are border checks here or that doesn't make logical sense, so I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. So we kind of justify um, not doing something or not going to a place or whatever. Yeah, as you see with him going to Lystra, Paul's only, um, the only definition Paul has for a closed country is where the Holy Spirit doesn't allow him to go. I think that's instructive to us. Um, yeah. Um, Romans chapter 15 might shed a little bit of light on the prohibition of the Spirit, mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, Spirit of Christ. I don't know that there's a uh, big difference there, but Paul says in Romans 15, he's writing, he says in verse 20, And thus I aspire to preach the gospel, not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation. But as it is written, they who have no news of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. For this reason... I have often been prevented from coming to you. Mm. Um, so it could have something to do with Paul's calling. Mm. Like you said, it's not a bad thing to go there, mm. but Paul's specific calling was to preach Christ what he had not he been, been, been named. Yeah. We're not aware of him being named in Ephesus yet, or Bithynia, but gosh, what a leap to go to Europe. I mean, this is the European mission. And what an incredible impact that has had on civilization for 2,000 years. The gospel in Europe transformed everything from an illiterate culture to, um, to a very literate culture to uh, a, an elevation of human dignity and worth. Over time, you see things being peeled off that were assumed in the culture of, of these tribal um, Germanic areas. The, the, the gospel to Europe is a huge deal in shaping the course of the world for the next millennia or so. I'm really interested to see uh, where he's going. I'm really interested to see how, how much of an impact is the gospel having in what we call the 1040 window there and across um, Asia and um, the Middle East. There are reports coming out that are pretty astounding, and it's hard to know what to trust and what not to, but good grief, if half of it is true, I would expect a culture to be... Um, rejuvenated from stagnation um, 
within uh, at least the lifetime of my grandkids. Well, just the, the missionary efforts that have gone on in the Middle East and in Asia, the closed, what we consider closed countries, seem to be bearing a lot of fruit <coughs> underground. I mean, it, at least the stories coming back are pretty encouraging about what's going on. It's hard, to, again, it's hard to know the authenticity of the stories and how to verify that. I don't know anybody personally that's been there and seen it, so it's hard to... But it seems to be really encouraging. Um, and yet, all we hear on the news is the, the most sensational stuff, you know. And I'm not saying there's not that there. It's very dangerous to go. But for, as, from a Christian standpoint, you have um, a lot of hope that there's the, the gospel is taking root there. The other thing that's interesting to me is that these closed countries have uh, many um, immigrants, migrants, here. And wherever you land on the whole immigration issue, from a policy standpoint, um, as a Christian, let the government do its thing, but gosh, what an opportunity for us, right? I, don't, I think many times we mix good policy with evangelistic opportunity. And I don't think that's right. If we come across people who are of uh, Middle Eastern descent in our country, in our town, in Tyler, even though there may be a legitimate, and I think there is a legitimate policy for how we let people in the country, that's a government bearing the sword for the good and safety of those inside. That's fine. But those who are here need the gospel. Yes? Do we agree with that? Or do we think of them as less than because of the descent? Are we, are we, it's a real danger. That's one of those idolatry culture things I think that's crept into the church. That we hate, hate our enemies and that infects the church as well. I think we should reject that. Be wise about what we're doing, but let's not immediately say, anytime I see somebody in a what the little thing, hijab, whatever, that I need to uh, stay away from them. They're dangerous. They could be... Paul didn't understand that. He had no concept of that. In fact, he goes back to towns where he's persecuted. We have it easy. They're coming here. From a church mission standpoint, they're here. Vote for the policies that make sense. I get that. But if people are here that need the gospel, then let's dialogue and work with them to, under, to give them an understanding of the gospel. We need to guard against the, um, the effects, I think, of... Uh, of sensational stories and extreme stories. Um, again, be wise, but I, I don't think our initial reactions as churches should be push off. Guard against being too guarded? Guard against being too guarded, yes. Again, the mind boggles. <laughs> any, any comments, any questions? Any fruit to be thrown? About the early, the version we read before we got into the missionary access, whatever. Um, and how Timothy was both Jew and Greek. And I've been listening to a little series Alex Rebecca's going on 
um, I don't know what it's called. But so you've got uh, freedom within Christianity, and um, it's kind of what they were talking about there, where you give up your freedoms to um, to be to meet people where they are in whatever culture, and let's see. He's pulling from First Corinthians like 9, 10, 11, where Paul talks about the food idols and giving up his freedoms, whatever. And most people focus on giving up their Christian liberty to like drink a beer or whatever around people because it might cause them to stumble or whatever, or watch a movie that has whatever. Um, and that's what a lot of churches focus on, but that also can make people fall into legalism and that is just as dangerous as um, Christian freedom, where you fall into legalism and say, like, you raise your kids to be these, you know, stay in line, little orderly children. But then, as soon as they get out on their own, it just like it blows their mind, and they just like fall off into whatever. And so, so you got both sides um, that you can fall into, and like everything is just a balance mm. of freedom versus. And what do we need to do? What's right and what's wise right now? Yeah, I, I, I that makes sense. yeah, I think I think balance is a is a good place to land, um, and it's hard to do. I mean, there are ditches on both sides of any of any issue, um, and finding that balance of of Christian liberty and um, thinking of others more highly than you think yourself is a it's a tough it's a wisdom thing. And it's a it's a constant struggle because we're at heart selfish. Um, anyway, anything else? All right, let's pray. God, I thank you for your grace to us, and that, and your great wisdom. You are calling not just one nation but many. And you're calling those out of those nations to live together in unity, but not uniformity. You're calling us to glorify Christ in our context and in our cultures. Not abandoning um, our heritage, but embracing an identity uh, in Christ that reflects Him while maintaining um, our history. I pray that you give us wisdom in how to do that and how to be gracious to others who are doing that. How to recognize that our first concern with any living human being should be, do they know Jesus? And that should be more important to us than um, safety, should be more important to us than um, public policy. Our focus is on Christ and that He be made much of by many worshipers. And so we want to be engaged with those who don't know Him so that you may save some through our efforts. I pray that you give the church at large especially the American church, the drive to uh, preach the gospel to those who don't know it, 
even within our own borders and to do that joyfully and um, zealously regardless of the policies and the, the debates that are swirling around us. I thank you for the fact that Paul did that and because he did that uh, your spirit gave fruit that ultimately would lead to our conversions. And that we are in Christ because the early church refused to allow culture and the barriers involved there to bar them from sharing Jesus. Help us to maintain that heritage over any um, nationalistic or cultural bent. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.